Last spring, I grew a plant. It was a little guy, only two or three inches tall, with a handful of little green leaves sprouting from a slim stem. It was satisfying to know that I had created this little plant, and I bragged about it on this show, on every social media and everywhere else that I could. Well, the plant died. In a one-two punch of quarantine laziness and a mid-spring cold snap, March of 2020 spelled the end of my little plant's short life. It still sat on my balcony for a few weeks as I spent my early quarantine mornings reading and chugging coffee. I watched it shrivel, and I couldn't do anything to turn it back. I let it go, and I promised myself, next year. Well... Next year has come, and I have a lot more space to grow plants if I choose to, but that same laziness has set in yet again. I'd rather sit at my desk and research all day long than fill a wooden box with a soil and plant some seeds in the dirt. That's on me. That's my fault. And I really have no excuse, especially because now I have a book. Well, a few books, actually, specifically for gardening in Florida. One is called Florida Gardener's Handbook, and it has several authors and contributors, including a former guest on this show, Robert Bowden from Lou Gardens. He, of course, told me to grab myself a copy, so naturally, I did. It will come as no surprise to anyone, I think, how complicated this entire process is. The book is incredibly detailed and lays out each and every question one might have about how to grow basically every single plant that could be grown in Florida, but the number of issues and specificities you have to consider is mind-boggling. There are obvious things, which plant, where, and why, which soil and fertilizer. Should it be in a container of some kind, or should it be planted directly in the ground? But what makes this book unique is what makes the entire concept of gardening in Florida unique. Our climate, which is unpredictable and overpowering. There's a whole guide specifically dedicated to what kind of heat from Florida is acceptable, what area in Florida is safest from cold climate, and how humidity can affect growing. There are graphs charts, maps, and more. There are specific regions, specific zones, specific classifications of plants. The number of necessary details that have to be taken into consideration, well, it's intimidating for a novice like me. Now, of course, you can always plant something simple, like a bunch of salvia or snapdragon like I tried last year. They are colorful and tough, and while cool weather could cause them damage, they can grow without tremendous amounts of care. You can plant grass or trees, you have a whole variety suitable to be grown, so long as you have the patience and skill to take the time and do it right. And then there's the nigh-impossible task, in my mind, of growing fruits and vegetables. We all have that fantasy, I think, of cooking ourselves some dinner and walking over to our box of herbs or vegetables, plucking a cucumber or some cilantro and bringing it right over to the kitchen for use. That is obviously much more easily said than done, and that is extremely true of one specific fruit. The strawberry. Growing strawberries in the modern age is no simple task. This book alone illustrates how heavy of a feat it is if one was to try it in their own backyard. You have to use irrigation, plastic coverings, fertilizer that has something called slow-release nitrogen in it, you have to be aware of freezing in the climate, you have to keep out birds and animals, and you have to deal with slugs, insects, and something called spider mites. The advice that the book gives? Well, it says, quote, Try growing strawberries. However, buying them may be easier and cheaper. End quote. Blunt, but honest. I appreciate that. 
So needless to say, someone taking up the task of growing strawberries in Florida has a lot of confidence and a lot of persistence to get the job done. One city near Florida's Gulf Coast, however, is almost synonymous with strawberries, especially in wintertime. They are called the winter strawberry capital of the world, and they've built their entire city around the fruit and their unique soil that helps them grow. The town is Plant City, home of the Strawberry Festival, the largest producer of strawberries in the whole of Florida. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the story of how Plant City grew its strawberries, how its strawberries grew its festival, and how the festival chose its queens. Some of my greatest memories in my life are at fairs. My old elementary school hosts a fall festival every single year, and though I've been away for over a decade now, I still come back for the hamburgers and, frankly, the overpowering nostalgia. I've also been going to Florida State Fair for as long as I can remember, dragging my family into the huge buildings with goats and chickens of all size and color within. But the Strawberry Festival is always a unique fair, one I seem to rediscover each time I go. It's in Plant City, just outside of Tampa. It's a fairly typical local fair with a midway, games, crafts, food, and performances of all variety. The only major difference is the prevalence of strawberry-related imagery. Do you remember that kid's ride where a cart spins around in circles while on like a rotating table? Well, the Strawberry Festival has that ride except the carts are strawberries. One of the biggest fundraising efforts at the Strawberry Festival are the booths scattered around that sell absolutely delicious plates of strawberry shortcake. And perhaps most importantly are the strawberry vendors. Piles and piles of them in soft green plastic crates, vibrant and red. Local Plant City strawberries are available for purchase every spring at the Strawberry Festival fairgrounds. My whole life though, I've wondered the same thing. Why strawberries of all things? I think it probably had something to do with maybe the time of the year of when the people arrived here and what they brought with them. That is Shelby Bender. I'm Shelby Bender. I'm president and executive director of the East Hillsborough Historical Society in Plant City. And we are housed in the old 1914 Plant City High School building, which was a high school for 40 something years. And then it was a junior high. And I went to junior high school here. Shelby worked for the East Hillsboro Historical Society for over 30 years as a volunteer, but came to her current position in 2013. She's doing all sorts of work, such as collecting local building histories or family histories. She says some of the most satisfying work she gets to do is when she gets to help people reconnect with parts of their personal histories they've lost touch with. It, and, you know, sometimes you do research that you're like, you know, it's bricks and mortar, and then other times you really can... Um, put some flesh on the bones. Shelby and I chatted over Zoom a few weeks ago, and I peppered her with my numerous questions about Plant City and its strawberries. I know what you're thinking, and yes, Plant City was indeed named for the famous railroad mogul Henry B. Plant. His trains revolutionized life in Florida, especially in Tampa and her surrounding cities as Plant City is. But the city wasn't founded by him. This region had plenty of occupants before the railroad crossed through town. As early as the 1870s, families would travel south toward Hillsborough County from Mississippi to establish a new town. Whether they knew it or not at the time, Plant City was actually in a perfect spot for growing strawberries specifically. 
Obviously, the weather here is important. Strawberries grow best in the winter spring months, but frost can be dangerous for them. Naturally, Plant City's location where it gets just cold enough to support growth, but not cold enough to kill the plants in the process, make it the perfect place for this plant to grow. But beneath the surface of Plant City, where the soil resides, there's even more to aid in the growth. See, strawberries grow short, shallow roots, meaning they don't extend deep into the earth. Water can't get clogged up in these shallow roots in Plant City because the soil there is quite sandy. It's no surprise that the fruit began to prosper here specifically, but history is unclear on who exactly brought the iconic crop to town. Shelby's research points to a man named Major Wheeler, who was possibly the first grower of strawberries in the region back in 1878. Another article claims the first was a few years earlier in 1875, planted by poet and Confederate soldier Sidney Lanier. Never mind who was first, it was in 1881, a few years after both of these men, that strawberries began to become an actual business. Well, over the years, we had different families that came to Plant City from other locations. Mainly Mississippi is where the two families came from that brought some of the early strawberry plants here. Those families that moved down here from Mississippi were now growing strawberries on their newly acquired land. These people were inventive, and even when they faced concern of frost, they adapted and moved forward, padding the crops with, quote, pine straw and field hay, end quote. Then comes, as always, Henry Plant. If you listened to the episode about Sanford earlier this season, you know just how important Henry Plant's influence could be on a city. With a railroad, a city could blossom, allowing trains to carry their crop further than they could ever have before. And then, of course, everybody connects Plant City to Henry B. Plant because of the railroad. And his extension of his railroad from the East Coast to the West Coast all centered around his Tampa Bay Hotel that he had built and was in the process of building. He wanted to be able to bring people to his hotels. Plant's Railroad was so formative to this stage of the city's development that they literally named the city after him. Apparently, some people thought it was called Plant City because they grew plants there, but that is not the case. Nowhere in the country could grow winter strawberries like Plant City, and they still today make up three quarters of the current production of winter strawberries. They'd be trucked out of the city by the caseful on the railroads or on local trucks off to northern cities where the frost severely cut down the strawberry production. You know, everybody says, well, he brought the railroad through Plant City for Plant City. No, his railroad was going to his hotel. So we can't separate that from the facts. But the strawberries, his rail way enabled us to be able to ship our produce to the northeastern seaboard and that in itself helped the strawberry industry boom and put it where it is today it, because then of course as the the rail lines increased they were able to increase how they could ship strawberries and we went from flat pack shipping to cold shipping and you know never before had they thought about okay we can now get our product from here to the New York market in 24 hours. That had never happened before. You know, it, it, it literally, it, when you think about the families that moved here from Mississippi and brought the strawberry plants with them, it took them a month to get here. And now we could take the product of that plant and send it thousands of miles away in less than a day. As the turn of the century came and went, Plant City was sending their strawberries across the country. 
How could they not become entirely devoted to the little plant that was changing their lives? It even affected school time for children. On many family farms back in the day, the kids in the family would be the ones helping out in the growing. So strawberries are planted in September. You know, they come in in November, December. So those children did not go to school during those months. They had a different school calendar. They were strawberry schools. Now that did end by 1957, but it just goes to show strawberries are everything in this town. It's in the early 20th century that Plant City started holding all-out celebrations for their favorite fruit. History tells us that by 1920, we really had begun to see the increase in production of strawberries. And it became such a major part of the agricultural and business economics of this community that, of course, they recognized the fact that we needed to recognize it on its own and put it out there for the public to see it. You know, let's let's draw attention to ourselves. How else do we get attention? And so they came up with, you know, Plant City being this, the world's winter strawberry capital, which they still claim that. And then also recognizing strawberry is king strawberry. It was a natural progression of thought. Everyone wants what we're selling. They should come celebrate us as well in our town. By 1930, the idea had flourished into action, and local business leaders and organizations opened a festival to celebrate what they called King Strawberry, the crop at the core of the community. Shelby's research shows that it was a holiday in town, with businesses closing early to go celebrate. That very first year, it was a four-day event full of displays for all the produce grown in town, not just the strawberries. There was beautiful decorations across the whole city, a full flower show, and of course, quote, all the strawberries you could eat, end quote. But one of the biggest events was a long parade that Shelby notes took 20 minutes total to pass an individual spectator. It had the Hillsborough High School band, decorated cars and floats, and most importantly, the Strawberry Queen. Well, the first year they had a pageant was 1930. Actually, it was the first year of the festival, and it was a way for the locals to bring recognition to the strawberry crop. They wanted to organize a strawberry festival so that they could recognize their king strawberry, not their queen, but their king. It was in 1930 that the a couple of groups got together and decided that they would put on a strawberry festival. And when we talk about the Queen contest, of course, you know, every event, every major event has to have a hook. And so their hook was to have a Queen's pageant. And we think of uh, beauty pageants, Queen pageants now, and they're, they're being uh, centered around beauty, etc. The early pageants were more or less a voting pageant. This isn't like our current definition of a pageant, so to speak. A century ago, it really was just a popularity contest and a fundraiser for the town and the communities involved. So everybody got an automatic number of votes, and then neighborhoods in Plant City would have ballot boxes for residents to pop in their vote for whoever they thought would be best suited as queen. Well, your community could get a box so that all your friends and neighbors and family could go down and vote for you. And then, of course, each one of those ballots uh, created additional votes for you. 
And then it moved over to, okay, a boat had a dollar value to it. So then it became not just a beauty pageant or a queen's pageant, but it became a race to see who could raise so much money. So, you know, is, is this, can you look at the early pageants and say, were they bought? Were they beauty? Were they popularity? What were they based on? It's impossible really to know why the women who won in those early years won the pageant. Many were indeed popular in the community and won because folks liked them enough to vote them as the queen. But Shelby and I share a big laugh considering that some wealthy father in Greater Plant City could not imagine anyone beating his daughter to become the Strawberry Queen. So he stuffed the ballot using as much money as he was willing to spend on the competition or as much as his daughter was forcing him to spend. Either way, it is quite an enjoyable scenario. People would compete from all over, hoping to win the title and be featured in the Strawberry Festival Parade, the most important event for miles around. The rural communities had their own boxes, the drugstores had ballot boxes, and I'm sure the most popular ballot box was the one at the high school. Each individual cent, as in one cent, counted as one vote in favor of your chosen candidate. So if you spent a dollar, that was a hundred votes. So the total votes skyrocket. Shelby's research shows that the winner in 1932 had 32.5 thousand votes, which means something around $320 worth. By today's value, that's about $5,700 spent on the winner alone. This was a big money competition and the whole community put in to support. And then, as with so many things in the 1940s, the festival came to a sudden halt. The whole affair had been growing exponentially over the previous decade, but when World War II was brought into full swing, the whole country went on pause. The way Shelby tells the tale makes it all too familiar a feeling. You know, when I researched that, I really did not find in the newspapers a statement that said, we are not going to have the festival because we are in war years. I think that probably if you look at the big picture, the reasons were there and they were so profound that you did not have to state them. You know, yeah, the people yeah. of the time knew that things were being rationed. And it's just like in the last year, we've been under this COVID-19 pandemic so we don't need to explain why we're not doing what we used to do. We don't need to explain why you and I aren't sitting down in my office and having this conversation face to face. It did not need to be said. Everyone knew the state they were in. Shelby tells me that, in fact, there was still a city event held by the Lions Club who were one of the organizers of the Strawberry Festival. In 1942, instead of the usual festival, the Lions Club hosted a rodeo. Was it because they thought they could make more money off of a rodeo? I don't know. There's no mention of why we're going to go from beauty queens to, you know, rodeo clowns. Who knows? It's a blip in the record, but as the war ramped up, Plant City buckled down as so many cities did during the war, doing their part in rationing and protecting their citizens. Once the war was done and America began rebuilding their economy, Plant City doubled down on the Strawberry Festival, starting up again in 1948 at full speed. So too did the Strawberry Queen pageant. 
Over the successive years, generation after generation would compete to be named the Strawberry Queen. Old founding families had descendants competing nowadays. The 1934 Queen, Dorothy Adelson, has the names of her ancestors in various spots around town. One former Strawberry Queen, Maria Jonquera, competed in the Miss USA competition as Miss Florida. Daughters of former queens became queens themselves. Sisters were separately queened, and Ruby Jean Barker Redmond helped crown two of her granddaughters as Strawberry Queens. My favorite fun fact is that the 1993 Florida Strawberry Festival crowned one Ashley Moody as the Strawberry Queen. If that name sounds familiar, that's because she is Florida's current Attorney General. And the festival itself has expanded too. It certainly has grown because when it first started out in 1932, it in total was, you know, just a portion of a block in downtown Plant City in the business district. Uh, just I would say on the outskirts of town, but it was it was within a stone's throw of your center of downtown. Now it's on the west side of town, which we still consider town, but it's 140 acres. So, you know, in less than 100 years, a little less than 100, it's grown from, you know, a major portion of a block to 140 acres. That in itself has brought a lot more enterprise and had a huge economic impact. The people that have passed through the festival over the years range from big name singers to even presidents. They have tried to get the legend herself, the Dolly Parton, but they haven't succeeded yet. Maybe one day I'll be sure to be there if she's there too. On top of that, Shelby tells me that President Jimmy Carter and First Lady Rosalind Carter paid the festival a visit, President George H.W. Bush has been to the festival, and there's photos of President Barack Obama in Plant City itself, if not at the festival proper. This is no longer a little celebration of an important little town. This became something much, much bigger. But, Shelby tells me, agriculture is an institution in the middle of a statewide crisis. We've lost a lot of our agricultural lands to development. I mean, I hate to say it, but I would say probably over 50%, if, if not closer to 70%, we've lost those ag lands to further development. It, you can't grow anything on a concrete pad. In an article in the Plant City Observer from 2018 titled, Where Have All the Farmers Gone? It is noted just how much farms across the county and the state are changing. They note a housing development that sits next to a water drainage canal in Plant City. Referring to the farmer whose property borders said drainage canal, the observer says, quote, A canal that would drain water from the development runs along his property and flooding already threatens the ponds that are the lifeblood of his land without any homes built. End quote. It seems, based on the interviews in this article, that the city is hoping to expand developments despite complaints coming from their farmers. And it's more than Plant City, this is a statewide issue. In the last 20 years, more farms have opened, but acreage is much smaller, meaning tiny farms are popping up rather than the traditional sweeping farms of years past. Agriculture is shrinking, literally. In Plant City, leaders believe that more housing and more developments will bring more people to the town, potentially even for farming jobs. The balance of both options is causing the city a lot of strife as they grapple with retaining their agricultural identity. In the midst of a changing landscape for farmers nationwide, what would Plant City be without its strawberries? 
On the grounds of the Strawberry Festival, you'd never know there was any concern. When I last visited in 2019, my family and I discovered an exhibit dedicated entirely to the strawberry pageant queens of years past. Through various hairstyles and fashions, the generations of the pageant queens smile down from the walls, the decades visible in their shifting portraits. Memorabilia and even dresses are displayed in the exhibits, some of which come from Shelby's East Hillsboro Historical Society. The gap when the war occurred, where there are no portraits, is glaring. That blank space answers questions without a second thought. But in the generations that followed, the tradition continued. The city hopes it would never find itself missing a year as it did in the 40s. Despite everything, the Strawberry Festival concluded a 10-day show just yesterday, the 14th. Agricultural festivals are not the sort of thing that would be created in this day and age. Plant City's identity, it seems, is at risk. But things carry on. Just as the title of the queen has been passed time and again down a family line through the generations, so too do the strawberries that helped the town flourish. It's a difficult thing when an identity of a town becomes intrinsically connected to the very thing that holds it together. It feels like a crisis of conscience, like something would be broken if the two were ever separated. The Strawberry Festival, it seems, is determined to keep the two inextricably linked. When you think of Florida strawberries, they hope you'll always think of Plant City. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, welcome. There are certainly a lot more brand new listeners nowadays, which I am extremely grateful for. If you hadn't heard, the show is recently featured in the New York Times. If you want to go check out that article, it is at the top of the episode description. Go give it a read. It is such an honor. It has truly changed the last couple of weeks. If you would like to leave a review, it would mean a lot to me if you would go and give the episode a five-star review. It means a lot to me to know what you like about the show. I have gotten some really wonderful reviews lately, some very kind messages from some people who have discovered the show in the last couple of weeks, which is just amazing. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFM. Nick. On all of the social media, I am often posting photos related to these episodes, so if you want to get a visual for some of the things we're talking about, whether that be a location, a person, an animal, a document, I have all of those images and some links on all of the social media, so go check those out. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Shelby Bender from the East Hillsboro Historical Society. She was so helpful in the creation of this episode. She was not only interviewed for the show, but she also answered a bunch of questions in a huge research document that helped create the entire episode. I literally could not have done this without Shelby's help. You can support the East Hillsboro Historical Society at the link in the description for this episode. You can go and support them. They definitely deserve your help. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can check out more of their fabulous music at the link in the description. If you're looking for some episodes similar to this one, I actually did one a lot like this one a year ago because I went to the State Fair, the Florida State Fair, and had such an amazing time there and learned a ton about their fascinating exhibit, Cracker Country. I also did a bonus episode with my dear friend Gabrielle Khaleesi from the Tampa Bay Times where we talked about 
amazing and horrible and fascinating fair food. Go check those two episodes out. All right, next week I'm taking kind of a spring break. We have five episodes left in the season, and I want to make sure that they get the time that they deserve. So, next Monday, the 22nd, there will not be a new episode, but there will be a new episode on the 29th and every Monday through the end of April, including a bonus episode on the last day of April. So, in two weeks, Monday the 29th of March, there will be a new episode. In the week that I take off of a new episode, I'm going to share with you some of my favorite episodes from the last couple of years. We have a ton of new listeners who maybe haven't gone back through the catalog, and there are some really wonderful episodes that might slip you by if you're just scrolling through all of the old episodes. So, I'll be highlighting some of my favorites. Go back and listen if you haven't listened before, or revisit an old classic. All right, I will see you on Monday, the 29th of March with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside and please drink more water. Have a good week. See you on the 29th.